We do have some really large reviews on soy intake and various health outcomes. Like from 2020, we have an umbrella review of 114 meta-analyses. And they just found a huge number of benefits, whether that be reductions in risk of cardiovascular disease, stroke, coronary heart disease, improvements in markers like blood pressure, LDL, benefit for a bunch of cancers like prostate, breast, colorectal, gastric, and, and so on. It was just, it seemed like benefit after benefit after benefit. We have a lot of data on soy and health outcomes and it's almost exclusively in the direction of benefit. Soy is an incredible food. I think it's it's a huge benefit to pretty much anybody or almost anybody who has access to it. That's Dr. Matthew Nagra. And this is The Proof Podcast. friends, welcome back. It's great to be here with you. I hope you're having a lovely week. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. I'm glad that we are finally connected. I'm Simon Hill, your show host, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. This show is dedicated to making science-based lifestyle decisions. In a world of misinformation and disinformation, My goal is simply to bring you agenda-free, nuanced information to help you optimize your health so you can feel better today and better for longer. I'm also a huge believer in considering the effect that our lifestyle choices have on the world around us, another theme that we'll explore together. Today, we welcome back Dr. Matthew Nagra for part two of our deep dive into soy foods. Last episode, part one, we focused on how soy foods interact with the endocrine system, as well as their effect on hormones and hormone-dependent conditions, such as certain types of breast cancer and prostate cancer. Today, we focus on how soy foods affect cardiovascular disease, insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes, bone health, and of course, muscle and strength. We also touch on some of the nutrients in soy foods, such as iron, and some of Matt's tips for choosing soy foods at the grocery store. Please do enjoy, and I'll catch you on the other side. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon.
If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Hey Matt, welcome back to part two of our soy and human health deep dive. Yeah, thanks. Glad to be back. Uh, hoping for another good round of uh, soy chat here. <laughs> yes, we had lots of great feedback on the last episode. So thank you for everyone who reached out. In that episode, we focused on soy uh, hormones and hormone dependent cancers. That was most of the focus. Today, I want to focus with you on what we understand about soy consumption and other aspects of our health, cardiovascular health, type two diabetes, bone health, and of course, building lean muscle and strength. Before we we start with some of these new topics, I did get a few questions about uh, the last episode. So it might be best that we go through some of these first and then we can explore some of the, the new areas that we wanna cover. The first question, uh, was whether or not there is any evidence that soy foods are helpful or harmful for endometriosis and PCOS. So I was wondering whether you had read anything that spoke to that. Yeah, I mean, we have a, a bit of research about both those topics, uh, more about PCOS than endometriosis. And of course, if people want uh, to hear an episode more kind of dedicated to these topics, obviously they can go back and listen to your episode with uh, Dr. Nitu, but um, I'll give my you know quick kind of roundup of uh, some of the evidence here. Uh, starting with endometriosis, as you mentioned, so for those who are unaware, it's a condition where the inner line, lining of the uterus grows beyond where it's supposed to. So it can end up outside of, of uh, the uterus itself. Um, and while there isn't a lot of data here, we do actually have one prospective cohort on soy intake and premenopausal hysterectomy. Um, and so endometriosis is a major cause of uh, requiring that procedure. Um, so we can you know, suspect that a lot of these cases were due to endometriosis. Um, now, this particular cohort had uh, 1,172 Japanese women who were followed for about six years. 
And although there were no statistically significant findings for total soy food intake, there was at least some suggestion of benefit. For example, those in the middle tertiale, so kind of the middle of the range of, of soy intake, um, had a, a lower risk of uh, needing a hysterectomy. And those in the third tertiale also suggested re uh, reduction in risk, but weren't quite statistically significant there, uh, meaning that we can't be incredibly confident uh, in that result. But the authors do go on to hypothesize that soy may be beneficial for reducing risk of requiring a hysterectomy, again, often due to uh, endometriosis. Now, what we should take from that isn't necessarily that soy is going to be beneficial for that condition, just because you know, we do need more data. Um, but at least we don't really have data suggesting harm right? That, that's kind of going back to the idea is usually people are avoiding soy in my experience because they're concerned about the harms uh, that they heard about. And that just doesn't seem to be the case here. Now, moving on to PCOS, we have a little bit more research here. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about some of the smaller trials or less rigorous trials, but there is one uh, randomized controlled trial from 2016 that followed 70 women uh, with PCOS, uh, had them split into two groups. One got uh, 50 milligrams of soy isoflavones per day for three months, and the others got placebo. Um, now, they actually had lower insulin levels, lower, lower um, HOMA scores, uh, which is a measure of insulin resistance, uh, lower total testosterone, improvements in triglycerides, improvements in VLDL. So, so we're seeing improvements in insulin resistance, which is a huge issue amongst uh, those with PCOS, right? One of the, the, um, one of the things that PCOS tends to, to be related to is insulin resistance and, of course, diabetes risk and all of that as well. So that's great. Lower testosterone. I mean, that's characteristic of PCOS is having elevated testosterone levels. So that's great as well. Uh, and then, of course, improving cardiovascular markers is always a good thing. Similarly, a 2018 randomized controlled trial with 60 women um, found that eight weeks of getting 35% of their protein from uh, soy protein uh, compared to an equal amount from both animal and non-soy uh, vegetable-based protein. Um, also saw lower weight, BMI, waist circumference, uh, lower blood sugars, lower insulin, uh, and again, reductions in testosterone. So we're seeing a similar kind of result there in the second trial. And lastly, there was a 2020 meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials looking at soy isoflavones and PCOS uh, as well. And again, we saw a reduction in testosterone values there. So Pretty suggestive of, of benefit across the board, um, whether that be for the hormone values or for the insulin resistance and cardiovascular risk picture. Yeah, I think we'll probably explore insulin resistance a little further in this episode when we think about type 2 diabetes. But as you say, that's a, a real central component of the pathophysiology or the syndrome of, of PCOS. And uh, we did explore that with Dr. Neetu in a previous episode at length, if anyone wants to kind of dive into that uh, a little more, as Matt said. The other question that I, I got from some of the listeners, Matt, was whether or not they should consider whether a soy food a product, be it tofu or soy milk or tempeh at their grocery store is organic or non-organic or is non-GMO? Is that something that you think people should be thinking about? So yeah, a lot of those concerns do come up. Now, I don't think we really have data suggesting that non-organics even worse as far as health outcomes, overall health goes uh, compared to um, organic sources. 
and kind of the same deal with GMO versus non-GMO. That being said, let's say it is a concern, and particularly the GMO picture. It still doesn't seem to really matter. Now, the soy products that we get, that humans consume, are pretty much exclusively non-GMO, even if they're not organic. Um, at least here, I go into the grocery store, I look for organic or non-organic, doesn't matter. They pretty much all are labeled as non-GMO. And that's because the vast majority that's produced, uh, or the vast majority of soy that is produced, um, is actually fed to livestock. And a lot of that is where the GMO soy goes in particular. And so, yeah, we, we save the, the non-GMO stuff for human consumption anyway. But again, that's that's provided that it were even an issue. And I'm not sure that the data really suggests that anyway. Sure. And I might just add on here, another question I, I had, which I can quickly comment on, was whether soy foods are bad for the environment. And I think there is this idea out there that soy foods are responsible for deforestation, particularly the deforestation occurring in the Amazon. I understand why that can be quite confusing. When you actually look at what's contributing to that deforestation, we see that 94% of that is not your tofu, soy milk, tempeh, et cetera. It's uh, largely driven by uh, animal agriculture, which makes up around 75% out of that. And then there's a large chunk that goes into biofuels. Uh, but these kind of minimally processed or whole soy foods are only accounting for around 6% of that total production. So you can kind of rest assured when you're buying soy food products, you're not buying into an industry that's responsible for that deforestation. Okay, cool. Let's move into some of the topics for, for this episode. Perhaps we, we start with cardiovascular disease here and, and consider how soy foods affect biomarkers of disease and then cardiovascular uh, outcomes. Yeah, I, I think a good place to start uh, before we get into the research on actual soy consumption and you know, cardiovascular disease outcomes like you know, heart attacks and whatnot, we should start with just the, the fact that soy consumption is a very powerful food for lowering your LDL cholesterol values. Um, now, we've spoken about this a bit before. I know in the first episode I was on, actually, we might have a little bit uh, in the, the second, the protein episode as well. Uh, but LDL cholesterol is um, one of the markers that we look at for cardiovascular disease because those LDL particles uh, that carry the cholesterol through the blood can cause atherosclerosis. They can wind up in the artery wall or in the lining of the artery where they can aggregate and they can be you know, engulfed by some of our immune cells and go on to produce plaques and, and eventually rupture off and cause a heart attack. That's the super quick version of, of that. Um, and we actually have a, a lot of data on this topic. So one uh, meta-analysis from 2019 looked at 43 trials on soy protein intake um, and found that uh, soy protein consumption could reduce LDL cholesterol by uh, just under 5 milligrams per deciliter, so 4.76 milligrams per deciliter, which is about a 3.2% reduction. Now, that might not sound massive uh, to some people listening, but here's the really impressive part. Most of those trials were comparing soy protein to something like milk protein. And that's not really how we will use soy most of the time, or at least the way that we're kind of recommending it, right? Normally, when we're talking about soy, we're talking about including tofu or tempeh or soy curls, as that's one of my favorites, in place of um, like red meat or or even chicken or those sorts of products, right? So not only do you have the potential benefits of a soy protein, 
You also have the added fiber there, uh, potentially. You have a reduction in saturated fat that you're not going to be getting from those um, animal-based products a lot of the time. Or, I mean, the same if you're replacing, say, dairy milk with soy milk. You kind of get that same sort of replacement. So I would suggest that that reduction is a huge underestimate or likely to be a huge underestimate. Uh, And that is why we'll see when we look at the research on on, uh, soy and um, and actual cardiovascular outcomes, the benefits are pretty substantial. Sure. What about the the portfolio diet? I know that that wasn't specific to soy foods, but that was more of a, a total intervention that saw quite substantial reductions in in cholesterol, much more substantial than what you were talking about there with with the replacement of soy protein isolate. Can you kind of talk to the main findings of the portfolio diet interventions and, and why that's interesting? Yeah, so there's a lot of research on the portfolio diet, uh, I got to say, by Canadian researcher, uh, David Jenkins, got to shout him out, uh, in Ontario, I believe. He, um, so, you know, this diet... It's not even really a diet. It's a portfolio or kind of a list of foods that are known to really lower cholesterol, and you eat them in conjunction with a low saturated fat diet. Um, So these components are going to be plant protein, often an emphasis on soy, but also other legumes uh, can definitely fit in there. Uh, Nuts or seeds, of course, and almonds are usually the, the nut in particular that's really pointed to. Soluble fiber is huge. So you can think of oats, Okra, eggplant, you know, that kind of slimy, viscous kind of fiber that you get there that helps trap some cholesterol in the gut so you don't uh, reabsorb it. Of course, you have to like the texture. Not everybody uh, enjoys it all that much. But then also fruits are good sources of soluble fiber. There's a ton of places to get that in a plant-based diet. And then the last thing they mention are plant sterols. Um, Now, you get these sterols in a variety of plant foods, but the concentrations aren't very high. So oftentimes, if we're talking specifically about the portfolio diet, it's in the form of a supplement or sometimes an oil uh, that's uh, supplemented with it. Uh, and we're looking at about two grams uh, there. So obviously, if someone is thinking about going that route, speak with your doctor, of course, but that's the basic outline of what the portfolio diet would look like. Um, and they've had really impressive results, um, you know, close to a 30% reduction in LDL cholesterol values, similar to even low-dose statins. Um, like that's that's a crazy number to get from just a dietary intervention. Yeah, I'm going to put the the summary of the portfolio diet chart into the show notes. That chart that you and I have shared many times. I think it's it's a great visual for people to see exactly what you're talking about and and how powerful it is because it kind of steps out the amount of LDL cholesterol reduction you would expect from each change or each uh, sort of component of the portfolio diet. I have a question for you, Matt. You mentioned nuts. And I know that uh, in some sort of sections of the plant-based community, people are, are much more pro, very low fat kind of plant-based diets. I'd like to, to hear your thoughts on that. I think some people may be hearing nuts and thinking, Oh, I thought nuts were were actually harmful for my cholesterol levels or my cardiovascular risk or perhaps for my body weight. Yeah. So if I had to pick out probably a single food group that is likely to have the biggest impact, biggest beneficial impact on cardiovascular risk, it would probably actually be nuts based on the data that we have. Um, Now, the polyunsaturated fats that we find in in nuts um, have the most powerful, again, LDL lowering properties. 
they're also or can be good sources of soluble fiber. But you know, this idea that nuts are harmful, it seems to be really extrapolated from some research on oil that found really short-term acute impairment of artery function after guzzling a ton of oil, by the way, uh, like a huge bunch of oil along with bread. It's just not, it's not a real world example of what's going to happen. And even if we look at say olive oil uh, consumption and these markers uh, or the markers that actually matter, they're beneficial. We we see actually benefits from uh, oil consumption as well. So I don't put any stock really in that. I think if anything, uh, people would be better off by including some nuts as far as cardiovascular risk goes. And uh, actually, the other thing you mentioned was uh, potentially weight gain. Well, we do have trials on, or yeah, trials on uh, nut consumption as well that don't suggest they contribute to weight gain, but they also don't really appear to contribute to weight loss. It, it just seems to be right in the middle, neutral overall. So, I mean, I don't think it's a huge concern there either. They just tend to be filling so people don't overeat as much. Mm. I think one of the tricky things there is that they they are very calorie dense, but that doesn't automatically mean they contribute to weight gain because being calorie dense, they can also be very satiating. So we have to consider how does that affect someone's total calorie consumption and their body weight. And as, as you say, the evidence doesn't suggest that nuts are contributing to obesity. Uh, do, do you have a, a favorite nut? Oh, ever since that uh, study came out last year on walnuts, it has to be walnuts. Um, just, uh, yeah, so for those wondering, there's just a very impressive paper on just walnut consumption alone. Um, what was it, like half an ounce a day? Or It was a really small serving too. I, I can't recall exactly the, the serving size off the top of my head, but a uh, pretty modest amount of nuts daily reduced risk of all-cause mortality by like 8% or, or something. Like I, it, was, um, it was very, very impressive and a really well-conducted uh, study. So that probably became my favorite for that reason. Uh, but I would say I have almonds fairly often too. From a flavor perspective, I actually really like cashews, even though they're some of the least impressive uh, as far as the nuts go. Um, but yeah, I like to just mix it up. Yeah. Cashews are up there for me, particularly for making cashew cheese and, and pistachios I've grown to love as well. Uh, just while we, we kind of continue along this uh, line of thought on uh, soy foods and cholesterol levels, there's another study I'd like to ask you about, and that's the Bergeron trial. Again, I know this isn't, isn't exclusive to soy protein, but soy sort of featured within the intervention in the, in the plant protein group. I think this one's interesting because often we hear this, this idea, or I certainly do, that plant protein, yes, it's beneficial. However, there is also lean meats, you know, lean red meat and, and lean white meat. And is plant protein really beneficial compared to those or is it just being compared to the more fatty cuts of meat? And this trial uh, attempted to kind of answer that. I'd love to get your thoughts on that one. Yeah, I really like this trial. Um, so what they did was they randomized participants into two groups. So one group's having high saturated fat diet, another group having a low saturated fat diet. Um, now within that, they had three subgroups. They had one focusing on red meat for the protein, uh, white meat for the protein source, and then non-meat proteins, so plant proteins largely. Um, now they were on four weeks on each of those three, and they rotated through all of them. So you had all the people in the low saturated fat group 
have either the red meat, white meat, or non-meat protein diet, yet all the people in the high saturated fat uh, group go through all three as well. Um, at the end of the, the trial, you find that LDL cholesterol and ApoB, which is an even better marker, it's a component of that LDL particle, um, were higher in the high saturated fat versus the low saturated fat groups. No real surprises there. But what was interesting was that those markers were actually better in the uh, non-meat protein group compared to both the white and red meat protein group. And the reason that's interesting is because within either the high saturated fat or low saturated fat group, saturated fat intake was the same. It was kept very, very, very similar. Same with fiber intake. And again, in the real world, normally you're going to be replacing foods that are or replacing foods in a way that is going to increase your fiber intake and decrease your saturated fat. So we're actually removing that benefit here. We're, we're stacking the cards in favor of the animal protein to a, to a degree, yet we're still seeing a benefit with the uh, non-meat protein here. Um, so it was a really impressive one. And the participants had decent markers to begin with, too. I, I'd suspect even better improvements uh, if we took a group that were at risk to begin with. Do you think most of that difference would have been driven by the the fact that the the lean red and white meats still contain dietary cholesterol versus the plant protein being cholesterol free? I suspect that that is probably at least driving a portion of it, if not all of it. Um, I, I think it's uh, probably the most reasonable explanation I can come up with. Okay, before we we think about soy foods and cardiovascular disease health outcomes, I'm interested in some of the other mechanisms that are potentially at play here. So we've gone through cholesterol. Are there any other uh, mechanisms that that may be contributing to to soy foods being favorable from a cardiovascular disease point of view? You know, one that would come to mind or that I would think about would be, well, the, the soy isoflavones, the phytoestrogens. That's unique to soy. Of course, that's driving it. But we actually have studies looking at high isoflavone versus low isoflavone um, soy products that, that are matched otherwise. And we don't really see much of a shift there. So it actually doesn't seem to explain the association. One of the mechanisms that was brought up in the meta-analysis I mentioned earlier was that some of the peptides, so when you break down proteins in your gut, you can form these peptides, these short chain of, uh, chains of proteins. Um, some of them seem to be able to increase the amount of LDL receptors on our liver, which are receptors that pull the LDL particles out of the blood. So if you're pulling it out of the blood, you can lower your concentrations. That's a good thing. So that's one mechanism. Another mechanism that's proposed is that it can actually decrease the production of ApoB and LDL in the liver. And so you might get a little bit of a reduction in production uh, of those lipoproteins, as well as an increase in the ability to remove it from the bloodstream. Um, and I mean, I don't know that we know all the mechanisms for sure. I don't know that we can confirm that those are absolutely the, the mechanisms driving this, but they are a couple that have been uh, listed as plausible mechanisms. And did, did we cover blood pressure? Do soy foods affect your blood pressure? Yeah, yeah. So there is some research on blood pressure as well and suggesting a benefit there. And uh, one of the mechanisms that's uh, suggested is that actually those isoflavones I mentioned uh, might be able to stimulate nitric oxide synthesis, which is uh, a compound that we produce that helps vasodilate or open up the arteries, um, which again can drop blood pressure. So that's one of the mechanisms there. And yeah, we do have research on blood pressure reduction. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, 
you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Someone might be listening and thinking, okay, this, this all sounds good. Some potential benefits up for grabs when it comes to cholesterol and, and potentially blood pressure. These are established biomarkers, risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And they may be wondering, well, if I eat more soy foods, how much am I going to reduce my risk of having a heart attack or, or a stroke by? So do we have any specific data that speaks to, to that sort of thing? Yeah. Um, so we have a, a 2017 meta-analysis, uh, 17 trials or 17 uh, cohorts, I should say, that found that high soy consumption or those consuming the most soy compared to those who consume the, consume the least had about a 16% lower risk of cardiovascular disease um, compared to those, yeah, again, who consumed the least. So uh, that's a pretty substantial benefit when we're talking about one of the, if actually the leading killer. Um, there's also a lower risk of stroke and coronary heart disease if we split it up into those specific outcomes. Um, and the benefit seemed to be specifically amongst Asian populations. 
Now, I spoke about this in the last episode a bit too, and it makes sense. You know, the reason that we tend to see greater benefit in Asian populations is because they eat more soy. Um, you're not going to really benefit if you're having it once a week. Uh, you probably need it a, a few more times than that. So uh, that's why we see more benefit there. Uh, interestingly, they looked at specific soy foods too, and um, the results were suggestive of a benefit from higher tofu intake specifically. Uh, it wasn't statistically significant, uh, if I remember correctly, but uh, it was it was uh, on the border there and uh, could have been a pretty significant reduction. Now, as I mentioned, yeah, again, the issue with the non-Asian population, just that they didn't consume all that much. So, so we didn't, unfortunately, see much of a benefit there. And just to, to sort of recap, in case someone's jumping straight into part two, the reason why it can be a little tricky to pick up a significant difference in a population where there is low uh, soy consumption is that when you compare low to high consumption, there's very little contrast so it, it can be very difficult to pick up a significant difference if, for example, the, the people that are consuming high amounts of soy are only consuming you know, 30, 50 grams of, of soy foods a day and you're comparing that to, to someone who's not consuming soy at all. Yeah, and oftentimes those consuming the most in Western populations are still consuming less than those consuming the least on average in Asian populations. So, um, you know, it's, it's quite a substantial difference there, especially when you compare the high end. There was actually one more uh, cohort I wanted to mention that was really new. This one just came out, I think, a month, maybe two months ago. Um, I thought it was quite impressive. Uh, almost 100,000 uh, participants. This was done in China and, and the participants were ages 40 and up. Now, they had, again, talking about range of intakes, they had some consuming less than 15 grams, um, then they looked at 15 to 29 grams, and then 30 to 59 grams, and then 60 plus grams per day. So when you're comparing those consuming the most, you know that they were consuming over 60 grams a day, um, and those consuming the least under 15 grams a day. Um, now, this actually had a pretty short follow-up. It, it was only uh, about 3.16 years total. But because they had such a large sample, they were still able to detect a difference uh, statistically, which is uh, really, really cool to see. Um, and when they looked at high versus low intake, there was a 14% lower risk of cardiovascular disease, a 19% lower risk of non-fatal stroke, and a 17% lower risk of dying during the study period. Um, so, I mean, that, that was pretty impressive. They did a really good job uh, adjusting for confounding variables, but they actually overdid it. So they actually adjusted for LDL uh, cholesterol levels, they adjusted for triglycerides, they adjusted for blood pressure, body mass index. If soy is beneficial because it improves those markers, but you're adjusting for those markers, essentially comparing amongst people who are similar in that respect, you might actually be removing some of the benefit. So it's actually possible that the benefits were even greater than what we see here in these results. So very, very impressive results there, in my opinion, for sure. Another interesting biomarker to think about while considering soy and, and its effect on our health is insulin resistance, uh, particularly when talking about conditions like metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, PCOS, which you mentioned earlier, also Alzheimer's dementia. I'm curious, have you come across any interventional studies that have looked at what happens to insulin resistance or insulin sensitivity when we replace calories from meat with soy foods? Um, yeah, there was one uh, trial, randomized controlled trial from 2014 uh, that looked at 
largely soy-based meat analogs, uh, as well as soy nuts. So getting about 30 grams from those, 30 grams of protein from those sources per day uh, instead of uh, animal-based protein. And uh, it was a crossover trial. So participants had four weeks on the soy protein diet, four weeks getting more of the animal protein. Uh, and they did improve markers of insulin sensitivity as well as other cardiovascular markers. Um, now, normally when you think of insulin sensitivity, one of the first things that comes to mind is weight loss. Um, that's one thing that can improve insulin sensitivity. But both groups actually lost a similar amount of weight here. So I don't think that explains much. And uh, ultimately, even the researchers suggest that the mechanisms are unclear in this case and aren't uh, entirely sure what is driving that benefit. Um, isoflavones maybe being somewhat responsible, but not explaining the full benefit. So, I mean, it was a pretty impressive trial nonetheless. Uh, we don't really need to know the mechanisms necessarily to know that there was a benefit from simply replacing animal protein with soy protein. Sure. What about the effect that perhaps eating less saturated fat and more polyunsaturated fats may be having on insulin sensitivity? Yeah, I think that could explain a part of it. Of course, uh, we do have some research on that. Uh, isochlorically replacing uh, saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat does seem to improve insulin sensitivity. So definitely, definitely a, a possible factor there. So given this effect on insulin sensitivity that, that we see and the fact that insulin resistance is very much central to the pathophysiology of type 2 diabetes, do soy foods protect against the development of type 2 diabetes? Yeah, see, that's the important question. Um, so we have a meta-analysis from 2020 uh, published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Uh, and they included data from 15 cohorts. Um, There's a decent uh, sample there. And they found that total soy consumption was associated with a 17% reduction in risk of developing type 2 diabetes, but it wasn't statistically significant. And, and that largely had to do with uh, kind of a variety of results amongst the, the different studies. Now, the reason we see that is because, again, the contrast. We have Asian populations, we have Western populations. And when we look at the Asian populations, there was a 29% reduction in risk of developing type 2 diabetes uh, in those consuming the most soy. And uh, if we limit specifically to what are considered the highest quality studies, there was a 39% reduction. So quite impressive there. Uh, now, tofu consumption was associated with an 8% lower risk. And actually, each serving, although I wouldn't, I would call it more than a serving, they, they called it 124 grams, which is larger than a typical serving of tofu was associated with a 32% lower risk, uh, each 10 grams of soy protein with a 9% lower risk, and each 10 milligrams of isoflavones with a 4% lower risk. So a variety of these different metrics suggest benefit, whether it be tofu, total soy protein, total soy intake, uh, and so on. The one result that I thought was really interesting was soy milk. So uh, the soy milk result wasn't statistically significant um, and not even in the Asian populations, which uh, I figured it would be. And so I looked at the specific studies and there was actually only two in the Asian populations, one showing benefit, one of them uh, even trending towards a harm or increased risk. But when I look at the study, they suggest that the soy milk they were consuming, and this was in uh, Singapore, if I recall correctly, had about 17 grams of sugar per 8.45 ounces. That's probably over double the sugar content I've seen in any sweetened soy milk here. Um, so they were just having, it seems like really sugary soy milk. And we know that sugar sweetened beverages are uh, not so good for you in, in a, a bunch of respects. So um, I think that probably explains it. So I'm assuming when, when you're shopping for soy milk, you personally look for the unsweetened version? 
Yeah, I usually go for the unsweetened. I don't think there's a huge issue, honestly, with having the standard versions, at least for the ones that I've seen around here. I haven't seen any quite that significant uh, for sugar content. Uh, But yeah, ultimately, I don't think it's a huge issue. I personally do choose the unsweetened, though. Mm -hmm. If you were to speculate on the kind of mechanisms that that are at play here. And I know you said earlier that they're not fully understood or, or appreciated and, and perhaps it doesn't matter so much in comparison to the actual health outcome, which is what's meaningful to you and I and to the listeners, the fact that we, we can get see this reduction in risk of type 2 diabetes. But speculating, what... What do you think's at play here? Is it inherent properties of soy foods or is it the fact that soy foods are displacing other foods that uh, have properties that may be placing us at increased risk of type 2 diabetes? Yeah, well, that's one for sure. Always, always on the table is what you're replacing. So um, definitely could be replacing things that are potentially worse. Again, high saturated fat foods uh, definitely would put that in there. Um, The authors of that meta-analysis do speculate on a few things. They suggest potentially reductions in inflammation, potentially an increase in antioxidant capacity uh, might interact with insulin receptors. They suggest that isoflavones, so again, those phytoestrogens may improve beta cell function. So those are the cells in your pancreas that produce insulin. So that's good. Obviously, over time uh, with diabetes, you can have um, a reduction in in function there and some damage to the beta cells. So uh, that's good to see. But yeah, yeah, ultimately, there's probably a whole lot going on. That's the, that's the thing about these mechanisms. You can always point out you know, specific mechanisms here and there, but chances are there's a whole bunch of things going on that we don't even fully understand. Uh, but what we do see is that you eat more, you have a lower risk. You know, it's probably a good thing. It's interesting that there's this idea out there, uh, particularly in the low-carb sort of world, that polyunsaturated fats are harmful. But as you mentioned earlier, there is strong clinical evidence showing the consumption of polyunsaturated fats in place of calories from saturated fats improves blood glucose control and reduces insulin sensitivity. So it would seem even if you felt the low-carb diet was the best approach for you, it would seem that in terms of constructing that diet, it would be better to lean more into polyunsaturated fats and less into saturated fats. Absolutely, 100%. A lot of the concerns around polyunsaturated fat comes from simply speculating on a single isolated mechanism, whether that be hypothetical, whether that be um, demonstrated in you know petri dish studies, animal studies, even in humans, you can look at a single mechanism possibly having an effect one way or another, but it's largely ignoring what we see when people actually consume these foods. So what actually happens to their health, um, right? So, th- so that's what we need to look at, not necessarily, you know, picking out these, these little details here and there. Mm-hmm. If you were working with someone who was uh, adopting or had been uh, adhering to a low carb diet for a long time, they were doing quite well. It was very animal based, high in saturated fats. They realized that perhaps they they could tweak a few things and improve their uh, risk uh, of cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes, etc. What are some of the the kind of big levers or swaps that you'd be looking at working with them on? I think there's a difference between what are the big levers to pull and what are the easiest ones to to pull, right? I think one of the simplest things for a lot of people would be swapping dairy milk for soy milk. I think that could be a really easy one. 
I know some people might not like the flavor necessarily as much. Okay. That's a little more difficult, but as far as convenience, I mean, every coffee shop's got it now. Uh, it's literally right next to it in the grocery store. You know, it's, it's not like you have to go out of your way for it. So I think that's a super, super easy one. Um, other than that, I think at least trying to, even if it's a few days a week, replace that, that meat or that, uh, you know, red meat or chicken or whatever it happens to be with a tofu. Or if you're making a stir fry with chicken, I think you replace it with soy curls. You wouldn't even know the difference, uh, depending on if you flavor it in a similar way. Um, those are the types of swaps that I would be looking for. It's just those, you know, make the same meal to swap out the, the meat for the, the soy alternative. Even a, a TVP, textured vegetable protein-based uh, meat analog, could be a good place to start. If someone needs something that's really similar to the meat product, you just have a, a plant-based meat made from TVP. Um, so I, I think there are definitely options there. But Matt, TVP is heavily processed. Yeah. How, how, would, you, how would you respond to that? What, what do you think about the kind of processing of TVP? So... In some ways, you can argue that the processing of TVP makes it even better. And that would be because it concentrates the protein. So you're removing a lot of the fat. Uh, it's an incredible protein source. It would rival even lean meats, like as far as protein content. It also makes the protein more digestible, if that were a concern. Um, it maintains a lot of the vit vitamin and mineral content of soy otherwise. So from a nutritional perspective, it's fantastic. Now, if someone were concerned just on the basis of it being processed and therefore somehow being unhealthy, well, that is a common misconception. Just because something's processed does not mean it's unhealthy. We can look at vinegar, incredibly healthy. Um, I think most people agree that a lot of like balsamic vinegar and that are healthy. Uh, you can look at olive oil, very processed, super healthy. You can look at uh, any plant-based milk alternative. They're, they're, uh, they tend to be pretty healthy and other than, I mean, maybe if you're going for like the full-fat coconut milk, maybe it's too high in saturated fat. But yeah, on the basis of, we can't really claim that something's unhealthy on the basis of it being processed. Why do you think we kind of fall into that trap? And, and we, you know, I've, I've been there where you, you just assume, okay, that's, that's processed, it's further from its natural form, it can't be as good for us. Well, yeah, it's a naturalistic fallacy, right? We think that just because something's natural, it's healthy, because something's unnatural, it's not. Well, if that was the case, I mean, all our medications, life-saving interventions, you know, they, they would uh, um, you know, be harmful, apparently. But uh, it, it's hard to explain. It's, it, it's like a neophobia. I think that's a good way to put it. This is a term that's come up a lot with like plant-based meats in particular, is there is a fear of something new. Uh, there just tends to be in some way. And I think we have to shake that. I mean, we, we're starting to get research on like beyond meat versus um, organic meat even. And we see that beyond meat may lead to better, at least cardiovascular markers. And I, I think we're just going to see more and more of that moving forward. So yeah, it is really just a fallacy and I don't know how to fully explain it or even how we can shake it. Um, it's, it's tough. I understand. Okay. Let's slide over to bones. I want to talk about bone health. I know there's some data out there around soy, particularly isoflavones, uh, the phytochemicals found in soy foods that we've been speaking about in these two episodes being beneficial for bone health. What studies are there that speak to this? Yeah, there was a, a meta-analysis on this as well, 52 randomized controlled trials. Um, and they were using, uh, or they were looking at isoflavone intake, as you mentioned. And they actually found that it improved uh, lumbar, hip, and femoral bone mineral density. 
So that's pretty impressive, especially like hip uh, and lumbar. Those are some you know big risk areas uh, as we age. Um, and it seemed to affect markers of bone turnover. So it helped lay down more bone and prevented resorption of bone or, or uh, um, removal, I guess, in a sense of bone. Maybe that, that scares people the way that I framed it. That's not it's not quite as scary as it sounds, but basically help lay more bone down and didn't allow the resorption of as much bone. Um, and what was really interesting is they found this effect at the lower doses of the isoflavone, so under 90 milligrams, uh, versus the studies looking at higher intakes. And they think there might be some sort of, sort of paradoxical reaction that happens there. But the thing is, that's not really the sort of range you're going to hit with dietary intake anyway. When you're consuming isoflavones in the form of foods, you're probably not going to surpass that mark anyway. So I wouldn't really worry about it. Can you just remind people the kind of typical amount of isoflavones found in a serve of, say, soy milk or tofu, et cetera? So for one cup of soy milk, you're looking at probably 20 to 25 milligrams. For 100 grams of tofu, similar. For 100 grams of tempeh, around uh, like 35, maybe a little bit more milligrams. Um, uh, if you're looking at soy protein isolate, it's even lower, under 20 milligrams. And for textured vegetable protein, about 20 grams leads to about uh, 35-ish milligrams too. So um, much lower than that kind of 90 milligram range. And even beyond that, it's not necessarily harmful. It just seems that some of the benefit may fall off based on those trials anyway. What do we know about people who are eating more soy and their risk of fracture? So we have a systematic review. Um, we don't have any meta-analyses as far as I'm aware, but uh, a systematic review of five cohorts, uh, five cohort studies. Um, and they found that soy consumption may actually lower risk of fracture. And again, they found this specifically in Asian populations. Um, that's expected, again, because they're the ones that actually eat a fair amount of soy. So, uh, yeah, it looks promising. Uh, of course, we could use some more data there. But, uh, but what we do have suggests benefit. Just playing uh, devil's advocate here for, for a moment, we see this benefit occurring consistently in Asian populations and less so in Caucasian. And, and you've spoken about the contrast and the, the sort of high versus low being different in this population and, and therefore it allows us to see a, an actual significant effect could it also be that there are differences in microbiome and, and one's ability to actually tap into the benefits of soy foods? Yeah, so there's speculation about uh, what are called equal um, producers. So these are, are people whose microbiomes may be able to break down some of those phytoestrogens and produce this compound called equal, which might uh, elicit some of the benefits. Perhaps that explains some of the difference. I don't know that there's a ton of data there. And I think it's, I think the differences are very easily explained, at least largely by the differences in contrast. Um, we do have some research in Western populations suggesting benefit as well. It's just not as consistent as we see in Asian populations. And again, I think that's just the difference in contrast. Okay. So to kind of round that out, soy foods would be good for anyone that's looking to build and maintain strong bones or anyone with osteopenia and osteoporosis as well? That's what, that's what it suggests anyway at this point, yeah. Okay, cool. So some folks may be listening here having tuned into part one last week and have made it this far into this episode, part two, and are thinking, I'm going to swap out some meat and dairy for soy milk, tofu, tempeh, etc. This seems like it's going to be a good move for my cholesterol, blood pressure, insulin sensitivity, and bone mineral density. 
all of these incredibly important markers of disease that affect our health span and lifespan. But in the back of their mind are thinking, what about my muscle? What about my strength? Talk to me about soy protein. Is it high quality? Is it a good substitution for animal protein or is it inferior? I think even amongst some of the most prominent pro-animal protein uh, researchers, at least I've seen on, uh, uh, on social media, even they'll agree that soy protein is a good alternative. And we actually have a meta-analysis from Mark Messina, who I have to say actually shouted out our last episode, which was really cool to see. Um, awesome soy researcher. He, he performed a meta-analysis comparing soy protein to either uh, total animal protein or various types of animal protein, sorry, or specifically even whey protein, which is considered a very high quality animal protein. And ultimately they led to similar muscle gains, uh, similar strength gains. Uh, there was no reason to believe that soy would be inferior in that case. And uh, even since that meta-analysis, we've had further research come out. And every time we see this comparison, as long as they are using a quality soy protein product um, and comparing similar amounts of protein, we just don't see it uh, being inferior in any way to even the highest quality animal proteins. While we're talking about uh, protein quality, I want to ask you about the DS, the scoring system. And I know we spoke about it in our episode on protein, but that was a little while ago. And I see plenty of folks on social media sharing protein sources by their DS score, as if this kind of directly speaks to absorption and bio, bioavailability and is not influenced by any other factors. Uh, I'd love to get your opinion on the DS uh, sort of scoring system and what the utility is so that if anyone listening comes across it, they understand you know, how those scores are kind of derived. Um, before we even do that, I'll just say that that pointing to DS wouldn't even be a shot at soy protein because soy protein itself seems to score quite high on the DS score. Uh, but for those wondering what the, the DS is, so it's digestible and dispensable amino acid score, D-I-A-A-S. Um, now, this is a score for the digestibility of protein, but it's often misinterpreted. In fact, almost always misinterpreted. Um, what it looks at is... They feed different protein sources to pigs typically. Uh, they also have a tube entering into the, the end of the small intestine and they measure how much protein goes in and how much comes out. The difference between what goes in and what comes out should be the amount that was absorbed. A few issues with that for one, pigs, while certainly closer to humans in the way of their digestive tract compared to things like rodents or animals like rodents, um, still not the same, uh, not the same protein requirements, they are rapidly growing and, and have other differences, of course. But another issue is they often feed raw foods. So if you're feeding raw legumes or raw grains and measuring the protein digestibility, uh, you're probably going to undercut the actual digestibility of that food because when you cook these foods, you increase the digestibility. You actually break down some compounds that might inhibit the digestion of the product. Um, so that's another big issue. Uh, but perhaps the biggest issue and the one thing that nobody ever seems to mention regarding the DS is that it doesn't just measure protein digestibility. It also measures um, amino acid content. Now, some plant foods will have higher amounts of certain amino acids and less of others, whereas animal proteins typically have a very consistent sort of amino acid profile. 
So if you're measuring a plant protein source that's maybe low in one amino acid, but it's overall very digestible, it's still going to score very low because it's lacking that one amino acid in the amount that you would need if you were only consuming that food, right? It only applies if you're getting all your protein from a single source and you're just barely meeting your protein requirement, your bare minimum protein requirement. In that case, yeah, it wouldn't be a suitable protein source, but nobody eats that way. And we're not recommending anybody eat that way. If you're eating a mixed diet or if you're passing your bare minimum protein needs, you can easily uh, meet your, your amino acid requirements. So the DS becomes largely irrelevant in that case. Okay, cool. So back to soy here. If, if I'm swapping out uh, whey protein for soy protein isolate or meat for tofu, are there any concerns I should have with regards to building lean muscle and strength? I see absolutely no reason to be concerned provided you're getting the same amount of protein. Okay, great. To round things out here, you mentioned before when you're shopping for soy milk, you like to choose the unsweetened version, at least something free from a lot of added sugars anyway. Is there anything else that you look for when choosing a plant-based milk? I think the biggest thing I look for is calcium content. Um, So if we're talking specifically about soy, then protein isn't a concern, but maybe I I might look at protein content too. But um, otherwise, calcium content is a big one because there are some companies that don't fortify their plant-based milks. Um, If we're replacing dairy products or if we don't want to have to really focus on calcium intake, which can be a concern uh, for some people on plant-based diets, then getting a, a plant-based milk that has you know, 25, 30% of your daily value of calcium in a glass or sorry, in a cup um, can really help you meet those needs very, very easily. Uh, other than that, yeah, it's nice to look for vitamin B12, uh, for vitamin D, which can be added. Um, but they're, for me anyway, less concerning because I make sure I supplement those anyway. It's not like the little bits I'm going to get through the, the milk are going to add a huge amount uh, to my, my daily intake given that I supplement, but um, definitely calcium is the big one. Cool. And are there any ingredients that you're looking to avoid? Sometimes I, I am tagged on social media and posts where people are questioning the, the long list of ingredients, at least that's how it's put anyway, in some of the plant-based milks, often drawing particular attention to vegetable oils and emulsifiers. Do you think people need to be concerned about these? Um, So, I mean, I haven't seen any ingredients myself that I'm really concerned about. Uh, But the funny thing is with that list of ingredients that you see on a package of, say, soy milk, most of those ingredients are just added nutrients. They might have fancy names that sound maybe scary if you don't know what they mean, but typically it's your vitamin D, it's your B12, it's potentially other B vitamins like vitamin B2. Um, even the calcium can say something like tricalcium phosphate. It can sound a little you know, scarier than it really is. Um, so not really concerned about those. And at the same time, when we look at, say, some of the vegetable oils in there, they're in tiny, tiny amounts. Um, so there's hardly any in there at all anyway. And even then, as people might hear when they listen to the debate that will be going up soon between Tucker and I, um, I don't hold the position that they're harmful. In fact, I hold the position that they're very beneficial. Uh, Now, of course, there are some other additives that maybe bring a little more controversy uh, controversy into the discussion, things like 
as you mentioned, emulsifiers or uh, carrageenan being the big one. But even there, I haven't seen any good human data suggesting that there is reason to be concerned uh, about that. It's typically from you know rodent studies given very high doses or um, just speculation around some of the breakdown products. Okay. What would you say to someone who said, Matt, it, it could take 10, 20 or, or 30 or more years to see the effect that some of these novel ingredients have on on health outcomes and wants to take the sort of precautionary approach and avoid them simply because they're new. Yeah, I mean, again, if we're talking specifically about carrageenan, I I just don't think there's really good reason to even think that that's a, a huge concern. And that's because the concern for carrageenan largely stems from a breakdown product of carrageenan or a degraded carrageenan carrageenan called polygenin. Um, that doesn't seem to really be produced in any reasonable amount uh, when we consume it. And at the same time, the rodent studies that do suggest potential harm are at concentrations way higher, astronomical compared to the sorts of intakes that we have. That being said, if somebody were wanting to be extra, extra, extra cautious, given all of that, then look, you can get a, a plant-based milk without those ingredients. I mean, uh, even actually the soy milk that I buy, not that I'm specifically looking for that, it doesn't have carrageenan in it. I, I know a lot of companies are stepping away from that simply because of those potential concerns. And that's totally fair. So if you're concerned, there are options out there. If you're not all that concerned, like myself, well, then, I mean, it wouldn't really matter in the first place. So I, I think there is something for everybody there. How about iron? Red meat contains quite a bit of iron, heme iron. Is cutting back on this food in exchange for soy foods going to affect someone's iron status? Iron intake, funny enough, actually tends to be higher in, in vegans a lot of the time. But um, but that being said, yeah, red meat is, is obviously a really well-known source of iron. Um, there is actually a, an association between meat intake and lower risk of, of uh, iron deficiency anemia. But amongst vegetarians, we actually or vegetarians and, and vegans, as far as I'm aware, we don't actually see an increased risk. And that's because they tend to consume more overall, um, even if it's, say, less bioavailable than what you might get from uh, meat. Um, that being said, it is something that I think women of menstruating age should be cognizant of. Uh, you want to make sure that you're getting enough iron uh, in your diet. And there are actually some pretty solid soy protein sources or soy sources like textured vegetable protein is an excellent source. Uh, tofu is a pretty decent source too. Other uh, soy-based products are pretty decent sources. But I wouldn't be concerned specifically with replacing red meat for, uh, for soy-based products, no. So comparatively speaking, those, those good sources that you just mentioned there, uh, how do they kind of compare on a milligram basis to, to red meat? Oh, that's a good question. So if we look at textured vegetable protein, and if we were to compare 100 calories, uh, you get 2.82 milligrams of iron. Um, if we look at regular, like 80% lean beef, you get 0.96 grams, uh, or sorry, uh, 0.96 milligrams. Or uh, for 95% um, lean beef, you get 1.75 milligrams. So you actually get more from the TVP. If we look at tofu, firm tofu, you get 1.99 milligrams per 100 calories. So you're actually getting more total iron from those soy sources if you're eating a similar amount of calories. And even though, yeah, sure, it might be less bioavailable in, in some way, um, because you're getting more, you tend to be okay, uh, as far as the data that I've seen. 
if someone is kind of negotiating, uh, let's say, uh, borderline or, or low IN status, are there any other things that you like them to consider with regards to adjusting things to help them improve the bioavailability of the iron in their meals? So if they're like borderline low, then yeah, I mean, dietary approach uh, can be a, a reasonable first option that could be uh, increasing uh, vitamin C intake along with iron intake, uh, onion and garlic can also boost absorption. Sure, those are fine. If someone is low, or they're having difficulties raising their values, I think supplements are the way to go. I would not hesitate, at least in the short term, to get those numbers up to supplement. And some people need to take it long term, and that's fine too. And when choosing an iron supplement, is there anything that you kind of recommend or? I don't know what's available elsewhere. You know, I, I'm more privy to what's available here in, in Vancouver. Actually, I think across at least Canada, maybe the US as well. I just recommend the standard, like uh, number one pharmacist recommended one uh, here is actually called Ferramax. And I just recommend that. But at the same time, I, I don't want anyone to take that advice to heart. I, I definitely you know, speak with your doctor, figure out what is the best option for you. Some people seem to respond better to certain types over other types. And so, yeah, I'm just a little hesitant to give a, a you know, firm recommendation or, or something on here. While I have you on this, this topic of iron and, and red meat, what do you think about this idea of zooming in on a food? like red meat, for example, and claiming that it's healthy. Or recently I saw a claim that it's a superfood based on the concentration of isolated nutrients found within it. It seems a little reductionist to me. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. It is reductionist. I mean, by the, you know, by that logic, if you're to say that red meat is quote unquote a superfood simply because it contains X Y Z nutrient, well, then a multivitamin would be the best superfood on the planet. We have to look at how these things affect our health. Who cares if it's a source of iron or something else if it might reduce your lifespan? <laughs> you know, it just doesn't make any sense to think about it that way. Um, now, I, I do understand that there are issues with, say, uh, food insecurity, in which case having a nutrient-dense um, source like potentially meat, if that's what's available, can be helpful. If you're speaking to somebody who has access and has the ability to choose their options, uh, to choose what it is that they're eating, and you're recommending they choose something that is associated with a higher risk of disease simply because it contains some nutrition, that's, that's just terrible advice in my opinion. Okay, well, I think that brings us to the end of uh, this episode, part two of our deep dive into soy. Was there anything that you feel we didn't cover today that you wanted to add or that we didn't cover at all? I think we covered quite a lot, actually. I mean, there there were, I can even fly through it at just mentioning that we do have some really large reviews on soy intake and various health outcomes. Like from 2020, we have a an umbrella review of 114 meta-analyses. So this is like a, you know, kind of the largest aggregate of data that I've seen on the topic. And they just found a, a huge number of benefits, whether that be reductions in risk of cardiovascular disease, stroke, coronary heart disease, uh, improvements in markers like blood pressure, LDL, benefit for a bunch of cancers like prostate, breast, colorectal, gastric, and, and so on. It was just it seemed like benefit after benefit after benefit. And this is actually echoed by a new scoping review of uh, a bunch of uh, meta-analyses, 28 meta-analyses in particular, again, benefit for cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular mortality, death from cancer, reductions in risk of diabetes again, uh, even reductions in risk of lung cancer. Um, you know, it, it's just 
we have a lot of data on soy and health outcomes, and it's almost exclusively in the direction of benefit, with the one exception being fermented soy and stomach cancer. I think I might have actually mentioned this in the last episode, but that's because of the high sodium content that you can get in fermented soy products like miso, uh, for example. And uh, yeah, other than that, I mean, soy is an incredible food. I think it's it's a, a huge benefit to, to pretty much anybody or almost anybody who um, has access to it. Yeah, for, for a food that's much maligned in certain circles online, there is an incredible amount of data in support of its consumption. Okay, thank you so much, Matt. Remind folks how they can connect with you online if they'd like to hear more from you. Yeah, they can uh, they can reach me on my website, drmatthewniagara.com. They can also uh, check out my Instagram at drmatthewniagara. Same with Twitter. I'm on Facebook as well. Um, if you have any questions about anything I've said or want clarity, send me a message. I'm usually pretty good at responding. And uh, otherwise, uh, you can wait for my next appearance on here, I guess. <laughs> yeah, which actually is uh, only weeks away, just as a reminder, uh, the the debate or conversation with Tucker Goodrick uh, will be on uh, YouTube in about three weeks' time from from when this goes up. So uh, you've got that to look forward to. Okay, thanks, Matt. This was uh, great. I appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on again. There we go, my friends. I hope you found that one interesting. I know I certainly did. Before I let you go, quick teaser on something new that's coming. This show is evolving as we all are. Head to theproof.com for a few details and register your email to join the priority list. That's theproof.com. And with that, I think we can land this airplane. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. I love you guys. And as always, I'm looking forward to repeating things in just a few days time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.